John had a bad memory, a really bad memory, until he went to a seminar. And one day he runs into a lifelong friend, Bill. He says, hey, Bill, how you doing? And Bill is a little shocked. Although they had been lifelong friends, Bill knew how bad John's memory was. He said, John, your memory's better? He said, yeah, it's fixed now. I went to a seminar. And Bill said, well, what was the name of the seminar? And John looked at his wife. He looked back at Bill, and he said, what's that flower that's got a long stem and thorns? And he said, a rose. And he goes, yeah. Hey, Rose, what was that seminar that we went to? A researcher at Johns Hopkins University did a study on the things that we most forget. Any guesses what some of them might be? Number one was names. Number two was where something is. Number three, telephone numbers. Number four, words. Number five, what was said. Number six, faces. And sadly, this one's me. Number seven, whether you've just done something or not. How many of us walk in a room and forget why we walked into the room, right? How many of you ever forgot your children? I, I've done that. <laughs> At least twice. I get home from church and I walk in the door and my girls are there and Libby goes, where's Zane? I, I don't know. I thought you had him. She said, well, I thought you were bringing him home. I said, well, I mean, he'll be all right till morning. I'll go back. I'm not going to go back tonight. <laughs> Actually, I didn't do that. I didn't say I had thought about doing that. I didn't do it. I don't feel as bad when I notice that Joseph and Mary forgot Jesus for three days. So, We tie a string around our finger, we set reminders on our phone, we ask those around us to remind us, we send ourselves emails, we set alarms, we do all sorts of things and employ all sorts of strategies in order to remember because we as humans know that memory often fails us, and not just in a physiological sense, but in a spiritual sense as well, which is why God invites us to remember in an effort for us to grow in our relationship with Him and in our faith. You think about all the spiritual reminders that God has provided. You think about the rainbow and Noah. You know, the rainbow was given by God to, as a promise to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And so now every time we see a rainbow in the sky, we can think of that promise, that covenant, right? I think of Joshua chapter 4 and the 12 stones that were set up as a reminder to future generations about how God stopped the flow of water of the Jordan River so that the Ark of the Covenant could be carried across. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. 140 times in Scripture, we use the term remember, or we hear reminders of what it means to have a memory that recalls what God has done. He has given us these reminders, not just to touch our mind, but they're also meant to touch our hearts. It's kind of like the picture frame I have in my office. If you've ever been in my office, I have a large picture frame that in the center of it, it says family. And all around that centerpiece of family, there's these little photos and they're all filled with my kids. Those photos of my kids don't hang on my wall because I forget what they look like. Those photos are not there to inform my intellect. I know my kids. I remember my kids. Those of you who have kids, no matter how old they get, you always remember them when they're little. And all these photos are of my kids when they were small because I want to remember those moments in time every time I look at them. 
I remember those moments, and I want to keep them fresh always. And the Bible's like that. The Bible has given us photos or snapshots of God and Jesus, of moments in time that we should remember, that inform us of who God is, His character. And, and we should look at it and say, am I living this? Is this not just touching my, my mind, but is it touching my heart as well? We should pause and look at God's Word and, and, and thank Him for Jesus. Thank Him for hope. Thank Him that this life is going somewhere. When we look at our spouse, when we look at our children, when we look at our bank account, those should be reminders of how great God is, right? When we look at the turmoil in the world around us, it should serve as a reminder that this isn't all that there is, that there's something better, that there's hope on the horizon. All of these are reminders of the one who is rescuing us and the one who is prepping us for eternity with him. John Morley once said, the proper memory for a politician is one that knows what to remember and what to forget. And I think as Christians, that's very true as well. There are some things that we need to try to erase from our memory. And there are some things that we should never forget. That should always be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. Go back to the first words of the Bible. First words of the Bible, in the beginning. Just so there's no confusion, the Holy Spirit thought it appropriate to start the Bible with these words. Because... God is the source. So the first words of the Bible point us to the source. Who's the source? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're not mentioned here because you're not the source. From the beginning, it's about God. This is a book about God. It's an autobiography, a book about God written by God, right? Then you look at verse 26 of Genesis 1 and you find seven words that relate to our story. Let us make man in our image. So this is where you and I come into the picture. The source of life makes man. You skip over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, you have four words that set all this off. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Indeed, has God said? And I think you know the story from here. The serpent questioned the source, didn't he? And then he deceives Adam and Eve. They eat from the wrong menu. They're ousted from the garden. And the story after that is a story of redemption. Adam and Eve introduced sin in the world. They didn't give birth to our sin, but they gave birth to the opportunity for our sin. And as you know, we have all fallen short. We have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We have all exercised our free will in a way that is rebellious toward God. And then four more words come into play. These words, for all have sinned. No one measures up, not without a Savior anyway. Then you go to Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Two words this time, but God. And these two words mean everything for us. This is where our story takes a turn. The source of physical life is the source of spiritual life as well. And that is Paul's message in a nutshell. Consider the source. That's why you're here this morning. It's why you pray. It's why you study your Bible. It's why you share the gospel. It's why you live to consider the source. So when temptation is at its strongest, you know what you do? You consider the source. When you're suffering, you consider the source. When you're joyful, 
you consider the source. When you hear a doctrine that doesn't make sense, you consider the source. When you're praying, when you're worshiping, when you're studying the Bible, you consider the source. So, we consider the source and we also consider who you were. And Paul hits the nail on the head with all of this in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14, he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then you go to Ephesians chapter 2, he writes, And you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, Consider where you came from and consider what you're not anymore. Consider where you came from, consider what you once were, and consider who rescued you, who brought you out of the darkness. Again, consider the source, right? In the 19th century, there was a potato famine in Ireland, and so many Irish folks immigrated to America. And on one American-bound ship, a young Irish boy stowed away, he hid in the ship, that particular ship struck an iceberg and was sinking. The captain loaded all the passengers onto lifeboats. He was the last to leave, or so he thought. He jumps in a lifeboat, and as he's pulling away from the sinking vessel, he looks back, and he sees that little boy come out of hiding, going down with the ship. And so he turns his lifeboat around. He goes back to the sinking vessel. He gets on it, and he tells the little boy, take my seat. The one he vacated. The little boy gets in the lifeboat, and as the lifeboat is pulling away and the captain is sinking with the ship, he yells out to the boy, Son, never forget what was done for you this day. And I'm sure he never did. May we never forget this day and all days what God has done for us, that we have been rescued. That's Paul's message to the Ephesians. Therefore, remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I want you to think about that last line. Let's be sure we fully grasp the meaning and magnitude of that last line. You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Gentiles by nature were not descended from Abraham. I'm sure you know that. And therefore, Gentiles of Paul's day knew little about Abraham or David or the Messiah. Gentiles were members of a different family, right? Citizens of a different country, excluded from citizenship with Israel. They were also foreigners to the covenant of promise. They, they had no family inheritance all of the means that they had were, were not anything that they could place their hope in. You think about all the nations that God used and had destroyed. They were all Gentiles. And you know who else are Gentiles? Us. That would be us. But have you ever noticed, this gets often overlooked, have you ever noticed that the promise to Abraham was for Gentiles? Not just Gentiles, all people. Notice it. And I will bless those who bless you, and the, ones, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Of course, this didn't come to fruition until Jesus came onto the scene. But it was the plan from the beginning. Unlike the Jews, Gentiles had no hope of redemption apart from Christ. They had no hope of redemption in their natural family. Think of all the peoples of the foreign nations that God used and destroyed. Think if you had lived in that time and you had been the subject of his wrath. You would have been outside of citizenship with God's people. It means that those surrounding nations, by nature, were nations that were living alienated, exiled, outside of fellowship, just like us, without Christ, right? You think about these surrounding nations, and you think about our nation, and we are citizens of a nation that is, you know, saturated with crime, and there's poverty, there's injustice, there's immorality, right? And if you're looking for redemption through a family inheritance or winning the lottery, you're not going to find it there. If you're looking for comfort and protection and provision in the things of this world, the good luck because there's little to no hope in the natural. We may find hints of it in this life. We may experience little points of, of hope here and there. But truthfully, there is no hope outside of Christ. But now, Paul says, two words, but now. And with those two words, Paul sums up where we came from and where we're going. Jesus left the comforts of heaven to get uncomfortable with us. He faced hopelessness so that we might hope. He, he suffered God's wrath to earn God's favor for us and he became one of us so that we could become one with him. But now, but now, may those words be forever etched on our hearts and our minds, but now are words of hope. They look backward and they look forward. We are here and we are going somewhere because, but now, in Christ Jesus, those who previously were far away now have been brought near. Sunrise, Sunday morning of December 7th, 1941, you may know what happened. 350 Japanese warplanes rained death and destruction on Pearl Harbor. Over 3,000 servicemen were killed or wounded. And then President Franklin D. Roosevelt declared it a day of infamy. The U.S.'s battle cry entering into World War II was remember Pearl Harbor. And we've had a lot of battle cries throughout the centuries. Remember the Maine? Remember the Alamo? We have days on our calendar meant to commemorate those who fought and lost their lives in order to preserve our liberties. D-Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day. And we have a memorial here that takes place. It's not yearly. It's weekly. It's a memorial to remember the one who gave his life for our liberty, right? It's to serve as a reminder. Communion offers us the opportunity to consider the source, to consider where we came from, and to consider what it all means. And we get to consider all of this both individually, personally, as well as communally. Acts chapter 2 Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Among the things that the apostles devoted themselves to, 
The Lord's Supper was one of those. They devoted themselves to it. They didn't want to forget it. That wouldn't have been a problem early on, but as time went on, it wouldn't be as fresh in their minds, so they wanted to remember. Therefore, we come together as a family on the first day of the week in the presence of our Lord and in the presence of our family, and what are we doing when we take communion? It's not just about a cracker and, and, uh, and some juice that's hard to open, by the way. What is this about? It's about sharing life. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about sharing life. That's what we do. We remember the life and death and the life again of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate Him, live for Him. We proclaim the life that comes through Him, through the gospel. Our hearts cry out in unison, He is alive. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's not just about remembering His death. Death has died. Our Savior lives. We can rejoice. And hopefully now you see why Paul took such issue with the Corinthians and their observance of the Lord's Supper. He said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul says, you need to look back. The Corinthians needed to look back. They needed to remember the purpose for which the Lord's Supper was instituted in the first place. This is always our go-to verse when it comes to the Lord's Supper, right? But in order to fully grasp what Paul is saying here, you have to back up. And you have to actually look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he writes, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Paul describes this communion as a sharing. Your Bible version may use uh, participation or communion. Same thing. It's the Greek word koinonia. Fellowship is another aspect to this. It is shared in common among a particular group. That's basically what communion or koinonia means. When we come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, we become partners with Jesus and with one another. The breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup is an exercise in unity and a beautiful illustration of the family bond that we share. Again, this isn't just about juice and crackers. This isn't some auxiliary ritual that we engage in because the Bible tells us to. This is serious business because when we partake of the bread and the cup, we are announcing to the world, hallelujah, the king has risen. He is no longer dead. We are saved. We are heaven bound. <laughs> Reminds me of the teenagers that uh, went to the nursing home to serve communion. A lot of folks there that wanted to take communion that couldn't come to church. And so couple of teenagers walked into this one room of a gentleman that they knew wanted to take communion. They knew that every week he didn't want to miss it, but he was dead asleep. They couldn't wake him up no matter how hard they tried. He was sleeping, snoring. He was fast asleep. And so they wondered, what should we do? Because we know he wants to take communion. So one of them got the bright idea to take the cracker and kind of crumble it up and put it in his mouth and work his jaws back and forth. The other one took a cup of the juice and poured it in his mouth and reflex he swallowed. Is that all it is for us? That we just kind of go through the motions? That we work our jaws back and forth and we manipulate our tongue and we, you know, swallow, but that's really about all we do? 
Is the heart and mind engaged? Are we remembering what this is all about and what it means for us going forward? Paul was so upset with the Corinthians because they weren't doing these things. He tells them, it's not the Lord's Supper you're partaking of. I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, is polluting the Lord's table. You're not celebrating. You're not doing this correctly. There was no sharing. They were not united. They weren't proclaiming the gospel. They weren't giving thanks. They weren't celebrating the risen king. In short, they had forgotten. And Paul was jogging their memory, reminding them that the primary purpose for communion, the reason that they gathered, was to remember. And it's the reason we gather as well, folks. May we never forget why we are here. My hope and prayer is that this is a family that acts like a family. Are families messy? Yeah. Is there some dysfunction here and there? Yeah, there is. But you know what we do? We take care of it. I often get asked, what is the most frustrating thing about ministry? Can I be honest with you? The most frustrating thing about ministry is when adult Christians act like junior high kids. And unfortunately, I've been there. I'm preaching to myself a little bit too. If we believe all this Jesus stuff, then we got to live it, right? And you know when you got to live it? When it's really hard. You got to do it when it's hard. So when we come together, we remember who we were, where we're at where we're going. We consider the source. We consider where we came from. We consider that I better get along with this family now because I'm going to spend eternity with them. Will you speak to me in heaven? Well, then speak to me now, right? Make sure that we are building those relationships right here, right now, and coming together as a strong family and setting aside pettiness or even, even difficult times. Show us who we really are. We're a family, and family sticks together. We are heaven-bound May we never, ever forget that. In the morning of November 12, 1986, Jamie Estep left her house in Stillwater, Oklahoma, heading to her job at a restaurant just off the interstate. And as she made the last turn and was headed down the frontage road, she noticed a car at a high rate of speed coming right at her in her lane. She tried to swerve to get out of the way, but it hit her head on. And this beautiful, vibrant, blue-eyed teenage girl was killed instantly. The man driving the vehicle was Lucas Jones. And Lucas Jones was thrown out of the vehicle at impact, but walked away virtually unscathed. He wasn't a bad kid but he made a tragic mistake. This member of the marching band and honor roll student had been at an all-night party where he drank too much and got behind the wheel. At his trial, there were many folks that, that talked about what a great kid he was, how he served the community, how he was an active member of his church's youth group, but then the prosecutors zeroed in on, hey, these are great accolades, but the young man killed somebody, and he deserves to be punished. And so everyone in the courtroom waited with bated breath 
to hear the judge's ruling. And here's what he said. Lucas, as the witnesses have testified, you are a decent young man. And from your own statement, I realize that you are truly sorry for the crime you have committed. I want to believe you when you say that you will never touch alcohol again. But, there was a long pause, a young innocent girl is dead because of your irresponsibility. And nothing you can do will bring her back. Her friends and family mourn her loss. I therefore sentence you to two years in the juvenile center. Since you have already spent 16 months, the balance of your time will be eight months. And a gasp came over the courtroom. Surely the judge can't be serious. This is too lenient. It's too light. And the judge continued. For the rest of your natural life, every year on November the 12th, you are to go to the scene where you plowed into Jamie's car and think about your actions. Son, I don't want you to ever forget what you've done. I want you to recall your poor judgment, the life that was taken, and your part in it for the rest of your life. And I'm not so sure that our story isn't a whole lot different. Because each and every one of us, me included, each and every one of us are responsible for the death of another human being. May we never forget that. May we always remember the cross. May it remind us of where we came from. May it remind us of where we're going because our tragic story has a happy ending, doesn't it? It's a happy ending because we as the people of God are heaven bound. Don't you ever forget it. And if you have a need this morning, let us help you as we stand and as we sing.